Hello, my name is Chris Salter and welcome to the Junior Family Law Podcast. A collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeves and Newton Kearns. Hi, my name is Ali Granville. I am a solicitor at Newton Kearns in London and qualified in March 2018. Today, I'm joined by Kira Moore, a four-year PQE solicitor at Mills and Reeve, and Carrie Stoneham, a four-year PQE solicitor at Burgess Salmon. We're going to be discussing pre- and post-nuptial agreements. I will start by explaining a bit about the background of nuptial agreements. Then Carrie will tell us the important legal considerations in respect of nuptial agreements. And we'll finish off with Kira explaining the pros and cons for clients of nuptial agreements and the potential pitfalls for solicitors to look out for. So just to give you a bit of background, when we talk about nuptial agreements, we of course mean both prenuptial, which means before marriage, and postnuptial, after marriage agreements. Prenups are generally a bit better known, but I find that inquiries for postnups are still coming in equally thick and fast. Historically, prenups were always considered legally un- unenforceable in this country. While they were popular in other jurisdictions, they never really took off in England and Wales until the landmark, landmark case of Rabmaker and Granatino although we still haven't caught up with the scale of prenups in the US. Prenuptial agreements actually date back to as far as ancient Egypt, I'm told. One of the oldest known prenups is over 2,000 year, years old. However, it was a verbal rather than written contract, which set out what each party would bring to the marriage. When considering nuptial agreements, most of the focus tends to be on prenuptial agreements, but it is important not to forget the existence and benefit of a postnuptial agreement, particularly if there are any issues in the marriage. As far as England and Wales are concerned, position in respect of prenuptial agreements and postnuptial agreements changed in 2010 in the case of Radmaker and Granatino. Carrie will look at the impact of this case in more detail next, but for now I will outline the facts of the case for those who are not familiar. The case concerned a German wife, Radmaker, who was the heir to a large fortune from the paper industry. She was married to a French banker, Granatino, and they were married in London in 1998, having signed a prenuptial agreement before a notary in Germany three months before. The nuptial agreement stated that neither party would benefit from the property of the other if they got divorced. They had decided to get a prenup on the suggestion of Radmaker's father, who insisted that she entered into one to protect her inheritance. She felt that entering into a prenup would prove to her father that she was marrying for love, not money. After eight years of marriage, the party sadly separated. Three years previously, the husband, Granatino, had left his banking job where he was earning £120,000 a year, pursue a career as an academic with a salary of £30,000 a year. Consequently, at the final hearing, when he was seeking financial relief, he was seeking to maximise his claim. He was awarded in the first instant £5.56 million to cover his capital and income needs. The judge, Mrs Justice Barron, took the prenup into account but determined that the importance was diminished as Granatino hadn't had any legal advice. Radmaker then took it to appeal and successfully appealed on the basis that um, Mrs Justice Barron should have given the prenup more weight. Granatino then took the case to the Supreme Court and tried to appeal that decision, but his appeal, appeal was dismissed and this gave rise to the famous judgment in which 
the judgment considered the weight that should be given to nuptial agreements by the court when exercising its discretion under Section 25 of the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973. In short, the Supreme Court held that the court should give effect to a nuptial agreement that is freely entered into by each party with a full appreciation of its implications unless in the circumstances prevailing it would not be fair to hold the parties to the agreement. I'm going to pass over to Carrie now to give us a bit more information about this. Thanks, Ali. The first thing to bear in mind is that the relevant legislation is the Matrimonial Causes Act um, 1973, Section 25, where a judge has to consider all of the relevant circumstances of the case. And no agreement between the parties can override that legislation or prevent a judge from deciding on the appropriate division of assets. So a prenup can't stop a spouse applying to the court for financial provision. However, a prenup is a relevant circumstance of the case to be weighed up by a judge. And a prenup will have a substantial impact on the judge's decision in many cases. So what the Supreme Court said in the case of Radmacher was that the court should give effect to a nuptial agreement that's freely entered into by each party with a full appreciation of its implications, unless in the circumstances prevailing it would not be fair to hold the parties to their agreement. So essentially it's sort of a three-part test that's set out. So the first one is that the agreement must be freely entered into. Both parties have to enter into the agreement of their own free will without any pressure from each other or anyone else. The agreement's unlikely to be upheld if the court finds evidence of mistake, duress, undue influence, misrepresentation or unconscionable conduct such as exploiting a dominant position to secure an unfair advantage. Duress is of course where one party exerts improper pressure on another party and that other party then feels they have no choice but to enter into the agreement. So an example of that um, could be a potential spouse threatening that the wedding cannot take place um, unless the agreement's signed, or if there's a situation where uh, someone is being threatened with physical violence unless they sign the agreement. In a case where duress is alleged, the court would consider the seriousness of the improper pressure, whether the complaining party protested to that pressure, um, and whether the party actually had a real choice or a realistic alternative to entering into the prenup. Looking at undue influence, which is, of course, different from duress, this occurs when a party abuses their influence over another party to coerce them to improperly enter into an agreement. So the emphasis here, as opposed to duress, is that, that there's the presence of an established relationship of reliance between the parties. And there are two types of undue influence. I won't go into it in too much detail in this podcast, but there's actual undue influence so where someone has signed the prenup as a result of improper pressure and they've not been fully informed um, and they have to prove that that undue influence resulted in them signing the prenup. The other type is presumed undue influence so that's for that to exist there needs to be a relationship of trust and confidence um, between the parties concerning the management of their financial affairs. Essentially what the court is setting in case law on this is that the circumstances surrounding the signing of the prenup and the nature of the relationship between the parties is key as to ascertaining whether presumed undue influence um, has occurred. Uh, Looking at misrepresentation briefly, that is of course where there's been an untrue statement of fact or law. Um, It must be material to the formation of the prenup and it must be a fact that would have induced a reasonable person to sign the prenup in those terms Uh, and that person must have relied on that statement when signing the prenup. So that's an example of some of the um, vitiating factors that uh, need to be avoided in order for uh, a prenup to be upheld. Uh, The second part of the test outlined by the Supreme Court is that the parties must have a full appreciation of the implications of the agreement. So essentially, we will talk about this in a little more detail later on, uh, but both parties need to have received 
legal advice and understand uh, the advantages and disadvantages of the agreement and, and the full implications of it. And it, it must be explained to the client that they, they must assume that the agreement will be legally binding and that it will pass the three-stage test. They, they should expect to be held to its terms. The third part of the test is that it must be fair to hold the parties to the agreement in the circumstances prevailing. And the Supreme Court has given some further guidance on assessing fairness. So it's not fair for a prenup to prejudice the reasonable requirements of any children of the family. There's nothing inherently unfair about a prenup that seeks to ring fence non-matrimonial property. The Supreme Court judgment does sanction the use of a prenuptial agreement to shield family wealth and assets acquired before the marriage. Um, And I think everyone would agree that that is generally the main motivation for most prenups is to protect family wealth. That seems to be the most common reason for, for having them. The longer a marriage lasts following a prenup being signed, the greater the chance it may not be fair to hold the parties to its terms because of unforeseen changes in circumstances. This is often more relevant to younger parties who are starting married life with few assets and it tends to be less relevant where significant assets have already been accrued before the marriage. Um, But of course there can be significant changes in circumstances at any point such as the birth of a child or bankruptcy Um, and we will come on to talk about how to uh, try and manage these these eventualities later on. That's just a bit of a, a whistle-stop tour of some of the guidance. So as the law currently stands, prenup agreements are almost as good as binding, provided they're fundamentally fair. But even if a prenup is given decisive weight, the court still has the power to make financial awards on divorce and a prenup will be only one of the factors considered when the court is exercising its discretion. I will just mention um, the Law Commission report on matrimonial property needs and agreements which was published in February 2014. That sets out some criteria which if met will mean that a nuptial agreement is known as a qualifying nuptial agreement and effectively makes them as legally binding as possible. Uh, In order to be a a qualifying nuptial agreement, a prenup must meet the following criteria. So it must be contractually valid. It must be validly executed as a deed and contain a relevant statement signed by both parties confirming they understand that it's a qualifying nuptial agreement and will remove the court's discretion to make financial provision orders. Um, except if the prenup leaves either party without provision for their financial needs. Uh, The agreement must be signed no less than 28 days before the wedding. Both parties must provide full financial disclosure, so all material information relating to their financial circumstances, and that should be appended to the agreement. Uh, And both parties must receive independent legal advice, which we've already touched on. Uh, So to ensure the best possible chance of a prenup being upheld in the future, it must comply with these formalities. Um, It's not actually law at the moment, the government hasn't yet issued its final response to the Law Commission proposals, but it's important to bear in mind that these recommendations may become law in due course, so it's always best to ensure that the prenup complies with these with the suggested criteria. A final point to mention before I pass over uh, to Kira on jurisdiction. Previously, um, a lot of prenups should have had reference to uh, the EU maintenance regulation, which of course no longer applies um, after Brexit. So it's just a point to bear in mind to make sure that prenups now make reference and say that the parties want the Lugano or Brussels Convention to apply in the event that the UK is allowed into those conventions. So it's just worth saying that um, you would want those conventions to be applied um, in the future. I'll now pass over to Kira, who's going to talk about uh, the pros and cons of prenups. 
Thank you, Carrie. So I will firstly deal with the advantages and disadvantages of nuptial agreements for clients before moving on to discuss the potential pitfalls from the perspective of the solicitor. It's my hope that this section will assist you in providing general advice to your clients as to the issues and considerations that they need to be aware of, as well as flagging up to you as the practitioner the points you need to consider from a professional perspective. The first key benefit of having a prenup is clarity. Nuptial agreements allow parties to make it clear to one another that certain property belongs to one of them alone and so will not fall to be shared during the marriage or on any future divorce. As such, it will form part of their separate non-matrimonial property. Whilst the treatment of the property that is asserted as non-matrimonial can never be guaranteed on separation, it can be clearly defined in the prenuptial agreement so that the parties are aware at the outset of the extent of each other's non-matrimonial property as well as its value. The second benefit I want to mention is certainty. Prenups allow parties to agree at the outset how their finances will be divided if they later separate or divorce. This is intended to, intended to minimise the uncertainty, time and stress of litigating about the finances if there is a subsequent divorce. Another benefit is transparency. The parties will be required to provide financial disclosure of their assets and income, as has been mentioned in the prenuptial agreement. This is so there is transparency at the outset as to the value of each other's assets, so the parties can agree terms on a fully informed basis. Another important aspect is the ability to protect assets, which Carrie has touched on. Prenups allow parties to ring-fence certain assets, such as inherited assets, perhaps family gifts, or even property acquired before the marriage. If the agreement ring-fences such property, the court is less likely to award a share of that property to the other party on any future divorce, subject, of course, to its consideration of any needs arguments advanced by the economically weaker spouse. Prenups minimise acrimony on divorce. The certainty and transparency associated with prenuptial agreements are intended to result in fewer arguments about finances in the event of divorce, which therefore minimises the scope for future litigation. Prenups offer protection of family members. For instance, your client may have children from a previous relationship, and a prenup can be useful in protecting the financial interests of such children by ensuring that certain assets are ring-fenced in a separate vehicle for their benefit. The final benefit or advantage that I wanted to mention is that prenups offer the client the freedom to agree their own terms. This can be helpful in affording couples a degree of creative control so they can agree their own terms which feel emotionally and morally right to them without the court imposing a solution based on established principles. All that said, it's important that your client is aware of the potential drawbacks and disadvantages of entering into a prenuptial agreement, which I'll deal with in this section. Prenuptial agreements tend to come with an emotional health warning and are often perceived as unromantic, particularly in the run-up to a wedding. The specific disadvantages that you will need to point out to your client include the following. Firstly, the fact that prenups are not legally binding. As explained earlier in this episode, a prenuptial agreement will not necessarily be binding, as the court retains the ability to make financial orders upon the breakdown of a marriage. As we know, the court will uphold a prenuptial agreement that is freely entered into by each party with a full appreciation of its implications unless in circumstances prevailing, it would not be fair to uphold the agreement. Therefore, a client could spend considerable time, money and effort negotiating the terms of an agreement, but then find it's not upheld by the court in any future divorce proceedings, though this will only happen if the court finds the agreement to be unfair. Prenups can present difficulties when it comes to making financial provision for children. 
A court considering financial claims and divorce will primarily be concerned with ensuring any child of the family is financially secure. The court is likely to be sceptical that arrangements drawn up years previously will be in the best interests of any children. Therefore, if a client wishes to legislate for arrangements for children in a prenup, they need to be aware that circumstances can and do change, and the prenuptial agreement cannot predict future circumstances. Of course, any clauses dealing with child maintenance will always be the subject of review if the other parent questions the adequacy of such arrangements. This is because the jurisdiction of the CMS and ability to apply for an assessment cannot be ousted by agreement. Separately, any choice of law clause may well not be effective. This can arise if your client has a connection to another jurisdiction and they may wish the court in that jurisdiction to deal with any future breakdown of the marriage. That type of client needs to understand that such a clause in a prenup stating that fact will not bind the English court and the court will always apply English law. However, if prenuptial agreements are usually binding in the particular jurisdiction in question, that may provide a strong indication to the English court that the parties intend to be bound by the terms of the prenuptial agreement. The penultimate point I want to mention is around changes in circumstances. A prenuptial agreement cannot predict with any certainty what will happen during a marriage. Should circumstances change, a prenuptial agreement has the potential to lose its relevance and so the court may well place less weight on its terms. That brings me on to discussing review clauses. To increase the likelihood of a court upholding the terms of a prenup upon the breakdown of any marriage, some practitioners opt for, uh, for a review clause that triggers a review of the terms if circumstances change. That said, many lawyers dislike review clauses as they tend to imply that the agreement will only be relevant for a limited period of time, particularly given the risk that the client may fail to review the agreement in the future, which could leave them in a vulnerable position in the event of divorce. Any review of the prenuptial agreement will result in further time, legal fees, and perhaps difficulties agreeing the changes that should be made to the agreement, as a review is likely to be made when there has been significant changes in circumstances, the timing of renegotiating the terms of the agreement may well be awkward. Yeah, I agree, Kira. I'm particularly not a fan of, of review clauses in prenups. Um, as you say, with the associated time and cost further down the line in the future, the last thing clients want to be doing on their fifth wedding anniversary, for example, is uh, calling the lawyers to get the prenup reviewed. I, I just think it, it causes all sorts of issues. And I think if uh, clients insist on a review clause being in there, then you just have to be aware with the drafting as to whether the agreement will still stand if no review takes place and just be alive to that. Thank you, Carrie. I totally agree. Finally, I wanted to just touch on the point that the preparation of natural agreements raises issues not just for clients, but lawyers too. The interpretation of the Rademacher test has fallen to mean that it would only be in an, in an unusual case where it can be said that absent independent legal advice and full disclosure, a party can be taken to have freely entered into a marital agreement with a full appreciation of its implications. Many lawyers interpret the case law to mean that taking legal advice is actually an essential precondition to the agreement carrying weight. The requirement then raises certain expectations of the lawyer and it means that we as lawyers need to be involved in the process of preparing and, and negotiating the agreement. For instance, it is expected that any lawyer advising one party to the agreement may in fact be negligent if he or she does not advise their client to ensure that the other party also takes independent legal advice, or at least has a reasonable opportunity of doing so. 
a lawyer needs to do more than just provide generic guidance. It's necessary to evaluate the particular circumstances of your client's case and then consider what the consequences of the agreement and its terms might be for the client in the future, not only based on what is known at the time of the agreement, but also trying to anticipate foreseeable changes in circumstances in the future. Defective clauses, particularly in cases where assets are really substantial, can store up claims for negligence for which the liability could potentially be very large. The usual way of mitigating these issues is to ensure that you have a robust and comprehensive written letter of advice explaining the law, but also the pitfalls and potential scenarios arising as a consequence of certain clauses. Carrie, did you want to comment here? I think really important to make sure that both solicitors have signed uh, certificates confirming that they've given independent legal advice to both parties. And also it may be an idea to have uh, a client sign, countersign a letter of advice or confirm by email that they've fully read your accompanying advice to the agreement and that they understand the advantages and disadvantages and the full effects um, of the agreement and the implications. And um, just, just to have that on file and to be satisfied that they've they've actually listened and absorbed the advice that you've given. I completely agree. It's a really, really important step. And as you'll have gauged, um, drafting prenuptial agreements can be fraught with difficulty. And there, there are even lawyers and counsel out there who refuse to draft them all together because of the uncertainties and the risks that are involved. It's therefore important at the junior end to ensure that any drafts you prepare and any precedents are reviewed at a senior level by another lawyer and possibly counsel if the case is sufficiently complex to ensure that your draft is fit for purpose. I think that covers off section three on the pros and cons, Atlee. So over to you for any concluding remarks. No, nothing further to add. Just to say thank you for joining us um, to discuss pre and post nuptial agreements today. You have been listening to the Junior Family Law Podcast, a collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode.